So good to have you with us tonight as we study God's Word together. If you've got your Bible, Job chapter 32. Job chapter 32. 32, 33, 34, 35, 36, and 37. Job, uh, in, in the book of Job, uh, Elihu enters at this time. A very specific time, a very particular time. Elihu is a unique individual. And you'll hear tonight and and next week as we talk about him that I will take a a different perspective on Elihu than than most commentators will take on Elihu. I think he's a a pretty good guy. And you realize as soon as you open up to chapter 32 that Elihu has been present the whole time. You don't know this because no one says anything until you get to this chapter. And you realize that Elihu has been there listening to the conversation since chapter 4. He's all, always been there. And it begs the question, who else was there? We don't necessarily know because the Bible didn't tell us, right? Maybe there were others that were present. Certainly there had to be, had to be somebody that would, was there who was interested in, in knowing what was happening. I mean, after all, if Job is the greatest man in the East, everybody knows who he is, right? And they know all that he had, and now they know that everything's been taken from him, even his health. And even to look upon him must have been quite the sight. You'd think that that would draw a crowd, right? You'd think that someone would come along and say, wow, have you seen Job? No, no. Ah, come down. Let's go look at Job. No, he looks pretty grotesque today. So they make their journey down to see Job in the ash heap and, and try to figure out what's going on with him. Maybe they listen in on the conversations. Maybe they want to know what's, what's being said. We don't know. We can only speculate. But we do know, when we come to chapter 32, that Elihu has been there the whole time. And what Elihu has to say is, is very important. So much so that he speaks for a long time. He speaks so long, it's longer than 12 books in the New Testament and 17 books, I mean, 12 books in the Old Testament, 17 books in the New Testament. So his conversation is longer than 29 books of the Bible. Now the question is, does what he have to say, is it important? We do know that at the very end, Job's three miserable comforters are all rebuked by the Lord, and they have to repent. But Elihu is not. Elihu doesn't have to repent. So what is it about Elihu that makes him different than the other three friends. And we, as soon as you begin to, to open up to Job 32, it says, then these three men ceased answering Job. They were done, right? Zophar, Eliphaz, Bildad, Bildad, they're all done. Because he was righteous in his own eyes. That was their estimation. He was a righteous man in his own eyes, no one else's. But we know that that's not true because that's not God's testimony about Job. But, verse 2, the anger of Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned against Job, and his anger burned against, burned, burned because he justified himself before God. His anger burned against his three friends because they had found no answer and yet had condemned Job. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were years older than he And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of the three men, 
his anger burned. Elihu is an angry man. And some commentators would think that that was the wrong way to be. I tend to think it's, it's a righteous indignation that you can be angry, Ephesians 4, 26, and not sin. And I think Elihu was rightly incensed with the conversation that's taken place. I mean, he just sat there and listened to everybody speak. He knows what's being said. And if you've ever been in a conversation and you hear people speak and they're not getting to the point and they don't provide the answers, and you sit back and say, mm, I, got, I got to say something sometime. I got to interject something somewhere because these guys are wrong, right? I believe that that's where Elihu is. His name simply means, my God is he. He's a son of Barakel, which means God blesses. And Barakel is a Buzite, okay? A Buzite is a land, and that land was governed by the young man named Buz or Buzz. He was the brother of Uz in Genesis 22, 21. So you have Uz and Buzz. And so, uh, and so the very first thing you notice is that there's a genealogy about, about Elihu, but there's no genealogy about the other three friends, none whatsoever. And that he's present with the conversation, so he knows all that's taken place up to this point. He's heard it all. He's heard what Job has had to say. He's heard what his friends have had to say. He's not pleased necessarily with either person's comments. Because he knows there's another answer. And on top of that, Elihu is going to be one who helps us understand how it is you prepare for the presence of God. Some would believe that Elihu was like a prophet or a forerunner, like Elijah or John the Baptist, because he speaks right before the Lord comes on the scene. He's going to help begin to answer some of Job's questions. He's going to answer them from a very spiritual, biblical perspective. And there's going to be a big contrast between what he says and what the other three friends have said because their source is different than his source. Their source was experience. Their source was tradition. But his source is from the Lord himself, which makes it a different perspective. And I'll show you that in a moment. But as he speaks, he begins to address these issues and begins to answer some of Job's questions. Job's biggest question was, why is it God not answering? Why is heaven silent? Why is there no response? I just need to bring my argument before God, and if I can, I can plead my case, and I can plead my integrity, then I, I'll be vindicated. And, but why isn't God listening? And so Elihu is going to answer that question, which reminds me of the story of President Ronald Reagan, who was a great communicator. He loved to tell one particular story of a young country boy who had just finished school but had never preached a sermon. When he arrived at this country church, he walked in, and to his amazement, there was one rancher present. 
The church was empty except for this one man. He was sitting about halfway back on the hard pew. So the young preacher walked back there, shook his hand and said, well, what do you think I ought to do? The old rancher said, well, I don't really know, son. I'm just a cowpoke, but if I went out into my field and found only one steer, I'd feed it. That's all the young preacher needed. He climbed up in the pulpit and delivered a sermon that went on and on and on and on. Over an hour later, he, he finally ended the marathon. He walked back to the rancher and asked, well, what do you think? I don't really know, son, but I'll tell you this. If I went out in my field and found I only had one steer, I wouldn't feed him the whole load. (laughs) Elihu feeds Job the whole load. The whole load. And with Elihu, there, there is no other conversation other than him. Job doesn't speak. Job's words are done. We saw that. That last week. But what he wants to do is address some of the questions that Job hasn't had any answers to. And he has become angry with the conversation that he has heard. Because I firmly believe that he wants to provide a biblical, spiritual perspective for Job. And begin to show him the answers he longs for. And so I've divided these six chapters under four points, okay? Chapter 34 is about appropriating the truth of God. Chapter 33 is about enunciating the graciousness of God. Chapter 34 and 35 is all about accentuating the justice of God. And chapter 36 and 37 is about articulating the majesty of God. Those are the four points we're going to cover this week and next week. We're going to get to the first two this week, chapter 33 and chapter 34, and cover the four remaining chapters next week. In verse 6, it says, So Elihu, the son of Barakal, the Buzite, spoke out and said, I am young in years, and you are old. Therefore, I was shy and afraid to tell you what I think. I thought age should speak, and increased years should teach wisdom. Stop right there. I'm younger than the rest of you. And out of courtesy and out of humility, he wouldn't say a a thing. He let the older generation speak first, and rightly so. But as he let them speak, he would assume that with age comes wisdom. And with that wisdom, insight in terms of what's happening. But he soon found out that with their age, there was very little wisdom, if any. And so he knows that he has to say something. And so in verse number 8 it says, But it is a spirited man... And the breath of the Almighty gives them understanding. He's going to repeat that statement. 
But I think it's a very important statement because I think it, believe, it really leads to the fact that he is talking about not just his spirit, but the breath of God infusing his spirit to speak the things of God. I believe he's claiming divine inspiration. I think that, that Elihu is going to speak to Job and to his friends from a biblical perspective, from God's perspective. Not from tradition's expect, uh, uh, perspective, or, or not from what uh, experience teaches you, but from what the Word of God, the truth of God, really teaches you. And you'll see that as we go on. In verse number 9, he says, The, the abundant in years may not be wise, nor may elders understand justice. And rightly so. He recognized that they didn't know as much as they thought they knew. So I say, listen to me. I, too, will tell you what I think. And commentators will say, well, you know what? That's just him being arrogant as a young man. Let me tell you what I think. I've heard what you guys have thought. I don't think so. I don't think Elihu is that kind of guy. And we'll show you that as we go through these next few chapters. He says, behold, I waited for your words. I listened to your reasonings while you pondered what to say. I even paid close attention to you. Indeed, there was no one who refuted Job, not one of you who answered his words. I listen. I listen intently. And Job was pleading for answers. And Job was asking, asking, what do I do? How is this the way it is? And you guys gave him no answers. And the reason they gave him no answers is because in their own minds, everything was made up in terms of what they believed was happening to Job. But he recognized they gave him no answers. And that's why God will rebuke those three men in the end. So it says in verse number 13, Do not say we have found wisdom. God will rout him, not man, for he has not arranged his words against me, nor will I reply to him with your arguments. I'm not going to speak the way you guys spoke. I'm not going to use your arguments against Job because your arguments are wrong. So, verse 15, They are dismayed. They no longer answer. Words have failed them. Shall I wait because they do not speak? Because they stop and no longer answer? I too will answer my share. I also will tell my opinion, for I am full of words. The spirit within me constrains me. Behold, my belly is like unvented wine, like new wineskins it is about to burst. Let me speak that I may get relief. Let me open my lips and answer. Let me now be partial to no one, nor flatter any man, for I do not know how to flatter, else my maker would soon take me away. He says, listen, I am so filled with what I need to say. I am fired by the Spirit of God. I am fed up with what you guys have said. And I am filled with the truth that needs to be spoken. My belly is about to burst. He's like Jeremiah who said, woe is me if I do not speak. And here's Elihu. He has sat back and listened to all the conversation and all the interaction and all the debate. And he sat back and thought, this isn't right. They're wrong. They've missed the point. And yet he said nothing the whole time. Until now. Job's words were done. The other three had nothing else to say. So now he believes it's his time to speak. And now he's about to burst wide open because he has so much to say. He's filled 
with what God wants him to say. And so he's going to address Job. And you will note in chapter 34, 33, verse number 1, he says, however now, Job. Do you know that the other three men never addressed Job by name? Only Elihu does. They never said, hey, Job, listen up. Job, what do you think about this? Hey, Job, no, never said that. They just spoke. But Elihu six times calls Job by name. Very important. I mean, just the things by observation of a text will help you understand a little bit more about this man, Elihu, who truly tends to be very sensitive to Job. He'll say some very direct things. He'll be very confrontive because he's a true man of God who wants to speak the, the truth of God. So he's going to do that. But at the same time, he addresses Job from a very personal standpoint. Did he know Job before this? We don't know. But we do know that when he addresses Job, he calls him by name, which is three friends did not. Not even once. But Elihu does. He says, however, now, Job, please hear my speech and listen to all my words. Behold, now I open my mouth. My tongue in my mouth speaks. He's pleading Job to listen. Job, I want you to hear what I have to say. I know you've been listening to everybody else. I know you're probably tired of listening to anybody else. I get it. But just give me a chance. Just listen to what I have to say. I'm going to speak. And when I do, he says, verse 3, my words are from the uprightness of my heart, and my lips speak knowledge sincerely. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. In other words, he repeats what he said in chapter 33. So he's going back to what he believes that God has spoken to him. And now he's going to speak it to Job. And you'll notice that when he speaks, he speaks sincerely, spiritually, seriously, and sympathetically. That's Elihu. Unlike the other three, he's going to speak, first of all, sincerely. When someone speaks sincerely, they do it because of their integrity and because of their intelligence. For it says, verse 3, my words are from the uprightness of my heart. That's his integrity. And my lips speak knowledge sincerely. So he's going to speak with great sincerity. And then he's going to speak spiritually. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Refute me if you can. Array yourself before me. Take your stand. Behold, I belong to God like you. I too have been formed out of the clay. Behold, no fear of me should terrify you, nor should my pressure weigh heavily on you. Surely you have spoken in my hearing, and I have heard the sound of your words. What a statement. I've listened, and I've heard the sound of your words. And Job, what I'm going to say is very serious. Very serious. But it's going to come from a standpoint of great sympathy. I heard what you said, and now I want to respond. I've listened to what your friends have said, and I'm going to respond to them as well. 
And so when you converse with someone and you're really intent on leading that person into, into the knowledge of the truth, well, it must be done with sincerity and it must be done with spirituality. And it must be done with all the seriousness of what it means to follow the Lord and honor the Lord. And it must be done sympathetically. And that's Elihu. So in verse 9, he says, I am pure without transgression. He's he's talking about what Job has said. And he's right about this. I am pure without transgression. I am innocent. And there is no guilt in me. Behold, he invents pretexts against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks. He watches all my paths. In other words, he is reiterating back to Job what he's already said to let him know that I've listened to your words and this is what you've said. You know, great counselors take your words and lead you into biblical truth. The other three men did not take Job's words and lead him into biblical truth. They had their own idea as to what he should be doing. But great counselors listen well, listen enough and well enough to be able to take the words that you've already spoken and lead you into biblical truth, the biblical understanding of what's happening in your life. That is Elihu. That's what he wants to do. So as he appropriates the truth of God in chapter 33, now he's going to enunciate the graciousness of God. He wants to show Job how gracious God is. Because Job's question is, is heaven silent? Why hasn't God spoken? And so what Elihu's going to do is going to challenge that thinking. Listen to what he says. Verse 10, behold, he invents pretext against me. He counts me. I'm sorry, that's not where I'm going to be. Um, Verse number 12, behold, let me tell you, you are not right in this. Job, you're not right. You got it wrong. For God is greater than man. So wait a minute. Job, Job has already said that. Job knows that God is almighty. God, Job knows that God is great. He's already spoken about the greatness of God back in, the, in, the, in this, the last chapter. But he does it from a perspective of, of the fact that you want to question God, Job. He says, why do you complain against him that he does not give an account of all his doings? Job, you really think that God is accountable to you? Do you really think that God has to give you an answer? Elihu is being very truthful here because you know what? Think about us. We, we, we demand answers from God. We want God to answer us. Why? Why is this happening? God, tell me why. Tell me why I can't do this and why I have to do this and, or why you're not responding. God, tell me what's going on here. It's almost as, as if we demand God to respond to us. And Elihu is saying, Job, are you demanding God to respond? Do you think God owes you an explanation for what's going on? Because most of us believe that God owes us an explanation. He doesn't. That's why I love over in the book of Romans, chapter 9, verse number 19, it says, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Who do you think you are to answer back to God? Take it over in Isaiah chapter 45. Isaiah says something very similar. As, I, as Isaiah speaks about young Cyrus, 150 years before the event happens, 
a hundred years before Cyrus is ever born, God calls Cyrus his Messiah, his deliverer. God is going to use a pagan king to be his rescuer of the nation of Israel. And so it's the first time and the only time that a Gentile is called God's anointed. Thus says the Lord, chapter 45, verse number 1, to Cyrus is anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings and to open doors before him so that the gates will not be shut. In other words, he's going to use Cyrus to get Israel back to Jerusalem. But Cyrus isn't even born yet. It's 100 years before his birth, 150 years before it actually happens. He says in verse number four, for the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one, I have also called you by your name. I have given you a title to honor, though you have not known me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me, and I am the Lord, and there is no other the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Verse 9. Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker. An earthenware vessel among the vessels of the earth. Will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? Or the thing that you are making say, he has no hands. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, to what are you giving birth? The Lord says, cursed is the man who wants to quarrel with me. For who do you think you are? Because I am God, there's none other, there's none like me, yet you want to question my plan and my process. Jeremiah says the same thing. Jeremiah 18, verse number 1. The word came, the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will, I will announce my words to you. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was making something on the wheel. But the vessel that he was making of clay was spoiled in the hand of the potter. So he remade it into another vessel, as it pleased the potter to make. For the word of the Lord came to me, saying, can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment, I might speak concerning a nation or con concerning a kingdom, to uproot, to pull down, or to destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. Or at another moment, I might speak concerning the nation or concerning the kingdom to build up or to plant it if it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good with which I had promised to bless. So now then, speak to the men of Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning calamity against you in devising a plan against you. Oh, turn back each of you from his evil way and reform your ways and your deeds. God says, 
I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And if you don't do what I tell you to do, then it's going to be worse for you. But if I tell you it's going to be bad and you repent, I'll relent. But you got to know that I'm not changing my plans. What I've decided to do, I'm going to do. That's in essence what Elihu was saying. He says, God is greater than man. Job, do you really think that, that, that God owes you an explanation for his plan? Do you really think that God should, should explain to you why you've lost everything? Why you're in such pain? Why you can't sleep at night? Do you really think the maker of the universe requires, is required to give you an answer? Oh, Job, you've got it wrong. He's not. In fact, he says this. Indeed, God speaks once or twice, yet no one notices it. In other words, God is speaking. And God speaks all the time, Job. And you've missed it. Now, notice, he was going to say two things. Job speak, uh, God speaks, Job, Elihu saying, two ways. One in dreams and one through discipline. And God has been speaking to you all along. You think he's silent, but he hasn't been silent. He has been speaking to you. Now, this is going to be the answer to his question. This is very important. I recall the words of, of one individual who said this. Once there was a man who dared God to speak. Burn the bush like you did for Moses, God, and I will follow. Collapse the walls like you did for Joshua, God, and I will fight. Still the waves like you did on Galilee, God, and I will listen. So the man sat by a bush near a wall close to the sea and waited for God to speak. And God heard the man. So God answered. He sent fire, not for a bush, but for a church. He brought down a wall, not of brick, but of sin. He stilled a storm, not of the sea, but of the soul. And God waited for the man to respond. And he waited, and he waited, and he waited. But because the man was looking at bushes and not hearts, Bricks and not lives, seas and not souls, he decided that God had done nothing. Finally, he looked to God and asked, Have you lost your power? And God looked at him and said, Have you lost your hearing? Profound. Elihu says, Job, God has been speaking. Have you been listening? These are words for all of us. Because God always wants to communicate to his children. Now we know that he doesn't communicate through dreams anymore. But he did in, in Bible times, right? He communicated to Jacob through a dream about providing Jacob an understanding on how, how to get to heaven. Remember the staircase that came down out of heaven? And angels ascending and de descending on, on that staircase? 
And when he arose from his sleep, he realized that God had shown him the gateway to glory. So God spoke to Jacob. God spoke to Joseph in dreams. So much so that he was able to save not just Egypt, but all of Israel, his brothers. God spoke through Daniel in dreams and visions. And God spoke through Ezekiel through dreams and visions. And Nebuchadnezzar, he would sleep at night. He'd have all kinds of dreams that that put great fear into his life, right? So much so that he wanted someone to come and tell him what his dream was and then interpret the dream, but nobody could do that except Daniel. And Daniel would defend all the other magicians as God would give him the knowledge of the dream, and then he would interpret the dream for Nebuchadnezzar. And that would eventually lead to Nebuchadnezzar down the road coming to a place where he would give his life to the living God. If you're with us in our study of Daniel, you realize how God would use those dreams to save Nebuchadnezzar, as Job would say, six times, five times in chapter 34 from the pit. So he says these words. Indeed, God speaks once or twice, yet no one notices it. In a dream, a vision of the night, when sound sleep falls on men while they slumber in their beds, then he opens the ears of men and seals their instruction, that he may turn man aside from his conduct and keep man from pride. He keeps back his soul from the pit, from the realm of the dead. Job, don't you know that God speaks? And God has spoken. And Job, Job had a dream. Um, Eliphaz, he had a dream in the night visions, right? And so he's heard about Job's dream. He's heard about Eliphaz's dream. So he already knows he's been a part of the conversation. He sat and listened. And he knows that God does speak through dreams because that's how God did it in those days. He would speak through dreams and visions. He would, sleep when man, he would speak when man was least likely to listen and to hear. Because this is all about the graciousness of God. This is why he enunciates God's graciousness. Because God is so gracious to you, Job, to speak to you in your dreams. Because God is doing this. He doesn't speak just one way. He speaks in a myriad of ways. But outside of that, Job, he speaks to you in your discipline. For he says these words. He says, verse 19, Man is also chastened with pain on his bed. And with unceasing complaint in his bones, so that in his life loathes bread, and his soul favorite food. His flesh wastes away from the sight, and his bones, which were not seen, stick out. Then his soul draws near to the pit, and his life to those who bring death. God uses discipline, God uses suffering. God uses affliction. People who suffer greatly, God speaks in profound ways. Remember C.S. Lewis in his book, The Problem of Pain? Remember what he said? He said the human spirit will not even begin to try to surrender self-will as long as all seems to be well with it. Now, error and sin both have this property that the deeper they are, the less their victim suspects their existence. They are masked evil. Pain is unmasked, unmistakable evil. Every man knows that something is wrong when he is being hurt. 
We can rest contentedly in our sins, but pain insists upon being attended to, attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And C.S. Lewis was right. God speaks to us immensely amidst our affliction, amidst our pain. It's like a megaphone from, from heaven. It's like Luke chapter 13. Remember when, when the Tower of Siloam fell on 18 people and killed them and they just happened to be walking by? Or where Pilate would, would mix the sacrifices of those who came to worship God with their sacrifices? And God said, do you think those people were worse than anybody else because a, a, a tower fell on them or because they were slaughtered while they went to go worship the Lord? No, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. The pain of their loss, the pain of their death was like a megaphone to all around. You better repent or you're likewise going to, to perish. Over in Psalm, Psalm 107, the psalmist says these words. Verse number 23, those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they have seen the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he spoke and raised up a stormy wind and lifted up the waves of the sea. They rose up to the heavens. They went down to the depths. Their soul melted away in their misery. They reeled and staggered like a drunken man and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. And he brought them out of their distresses. God caused a storm in the sea. You've heard about the, the men, he's, the psalmist says, who go out to sea. And they know all about the sea. They know about storms in the sea. But when a storm arises that's so immense and so dangerous that, that men fear for their lives, they cry out to the Lord, and the Lord hears their cry and delivers them from their distress. Why? Because the pain of impending death was like a megaphone to wake them up from their spiritual stupor to realize death is imminent. Will you repent? Will you follow the Lord? Will you be saved from the pit? That's exactly what Elihu is saying. Elihu has, has great wisdom because they firmly believe he is speaking from the words of God, the breath of the Almighty, because he's preparing Job for when God is about to speak. Now, does Elihu know God's going to speak? I don't think so. But he becomes the prophet for Job to prepare him. When God speaks, he's not going to give you any explanation, Job. He's not going to explain to you why you lost your kids. He's not going to explain to you why your wife has not come to visit you or sits with you in the ash heap. He's not going to do that. He's not going to explain to you why all your servants are dead and why your house is destroyed and why your finances are all gone. He's not going to tell you that, Job. All he's going to do is reveal to you himself. He wants you to know who he is. Because if you know who he is, none of that other stuff matters. It doesn't. Because everything will be seen from the perspective of God's eyes, not your eyes. So Elihu is in the process of preparing Job for what God's going to say to him. He tells them, listen, God is speaking. And in dreams, when man's asleep, when he's very passive, God arouses him and opens his eyes, opens his ears, because he knows that judgment is right around the corner. He needs to listen to what God has to say. And those who suffer pain, like yourself, Job, 
like you, Job. You're sitting here in, in, in an ash heap. You're here in, in all kinds of pain. You're in misery, Job. And God is speaking to you loudly. Are you listening? Have you heard what he's saying to you? Now, we know this is true. Why? Because at the very end, he will say, I have heard of you with the hearing of my ear, but now my eyes have finally seen you. So God is at work in Job's life. In fact, Job has been working, God has been working in Job's life all along. Remember back in um, Job chapter, chapter 9? In Job chapter 9, it tells us that Job cried for a mediator. He cried for an advocate, wanting someone to defend him, right? But when he comes to Job chapter 16, he says these words, Even now my witness is in heaven and my advocate is on high. So, so God is increasingly telling him exactly what's happening, opening his eyes to understand that he does have a mediator. He does have an advocate. He is in heaven. And when you come to chapter 19, Job says, my, I know that my Redeemer lives, and one day he will stand upon the earth. And then when you come to chapter 23, he says, listen, I know that when he's tried me, I'll come forth as gold. So, so God is teaching Job. Job is growing in his knowledge and understanding of God as the chapters go on. All Elihu do, is doing is opening Job's eyes to help him see that God is already at work in your life, Job. You just haven't been listening. So Elihu's words are, are very, very profound. He says in verse number 23, if there's an angel, a messenger, as a mediator for him, one out of a thousand to remind a man what is right for him, then let, let him be gracious to him and say, deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. Let the flesh become fresher than in youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Then he will pray to God and he will accept him that he may see his face with joy and he may restore his righteousness to man. He will sing to men and say, I have sinned and perverted what is right, and it is not proper for me. He has redeemed my soul from going to the pit, and my life shall see the light. Then he says, behold, God does all these oftentimes with men. Why? Because God is gracious. God is kind. God is good. That's what God does, Job. See, he takes a totally different perspective than the other three guys. They're hammering on Job. They're berating Job. You've sinned. You have what you have because you have secret sin. You're keeping from God. Job, you're out of fellowship with God. Job, this is all wrong. You've got to repent. And Elihu says, hey, Job, listen. Listen, I'm not going to rag on you because of some secret sin because I don't believe you have a secret sin. I believe you're right that you are blameless before the Lord. But Job, I need to correct your thinking because I don't think you're listening. God is trying to get your attention, trying to draw you closer to him. Think about it. The most righteous man on the earth, the most upright man, the man who fears God, turns away from evil, God knows he still can be closer to me, closer to me, more intimate with me. Paul knew that. Paul was a righteous man. Paul was an upright man. Paul walked with God. But boy, he cried to know God even all the more because he knew that there was so much more to know about his God. And here is Job. Amidst all of his pain and suffering, 
saying, God, are you going to speak? Are you going to say anything at all? Are you going to vindicate me in front of these three miserable comforters of mine? Why are you so silent? Why he says, Job, hold on a second. I'm not sure you're right here. I really believe you need to understand that God has been dealing with you all along. And maybe you haven't seen it. Maybe you don't recognize it. But it's probably because you're not listening very well. And then he says these words. He says, Behold, God does all these oftentimes with men to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be enlightened with the light of life. Pay attention, O Job. Listen to me. Keep silent. Let me speak. Then if you have anything to say, answer me. Speak, for I desire to justify you, to, to cause you to stand upright. If not, listen to me. Keep silent, and I will teach you wisdom. What a great guy. Totally different tone when he speaks than when the other men spoke. Because I really believe he had Job's whole demeanor in mind. I believe he sat and listened and was so irate with what these men were saying that he now, when he has a chance to speak as a young man, as he is, he wants to really explain to Job things from a very spiritual and biblical perspective to prepare him for when God does speak. Because if he prepares him by saying, you know what, God offers you no explanation, when God finally does speak, he's not looking for an explanation. See? Because God's just going to give him a revelation. A revelation to his character. Who he is. How he operates. This is Elihu. What a great individual. You know, it's important to realize, and we've told you this before in our study of Hebrews, when God disciplines you, remember, it's either correctional, preventional, or instructional. Correctional because you've sinned and you need to be corrected, or it's preventional to prevent you from sinning, that's Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when he says that I was given this thorn to keep me from being puffed up or lifted up, being prideful, right? That was a preventional kind of discipline that, that, that Paul experienced. And then there's instructional discipline. And this is where Job is, right? Job doesn't need to be corrected because there's some sin in his life. He doesn't need to be... Uh, dealt with because God wants to prevent him from some sin or prevent him from something in his life, but he's going to instruct Job. And all of them, whether they're preventional, correctional, or instructional, they're all conformational, right? They're all designed to conform me to the image of God that I might better represent him. And that's why uh, Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 7, He says, consider the work of God for who is able to straighten that which he has bent. I love that. Who can straighten what God has bent? In other words, God God bends things. He twists things. He he does it simply because he messes with your mind. He doesn't want you to think you're ever in control of anything. So he uses it. Who can straighten what he himself has bent? What he's twisted? Answer, you can't. In the day of prosperity, be happy. 
In the name of adversity, consider. Consider what? That God has made the one as well as the other. The very first thing you need to consider is that God made both days. He made the day of prosperity and the day of adversity. God didn't just make the day of prosperity and the day of adversity is just a bad day. No, God made that day too, right? So consider that God made one as well as the other. And when you consider that, note, so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. In other words, God says, I made those days the way I did them, so you'll never understand what I'm going to do next. Why? Because you need to trust me. You need to wait on me. You need to believe in me. Because unless you do that, you're going to think you're, you can do whatever you want. You can't. I, I need you to trust me. God wants us to trust him. He wants us to be dependent upon him. He wants us to, to, to behold his beauty. He really wants to reveal to us his beauty. He wants us to see him for who he is. Not see him maybe the way somebody else sees him or the, the way maybe we might read in a book, but he wants us to see him for who he truly, really is. So the psalmist said in Psalm 1975, in faithfulness thou hast afflicted me. Why can he say that? He says simply because earlier he said in verse number 67 of Psalm 119, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Before affliction, I did whatever I wanted to do. I went here, I went there. I went astray. Why? There was nothing hemming me in. Before I I was afflicted, I went astray. But now, now I keep your word. Why? Because affliction was God's megaphone to get my attention. Suffering was God's, God's voice yelling and screaming in my ear, listen to me, pay attention to what I have to say. So the psalmist says, before I was afflicted, I did whatever I wanted to do. But now, now I keep your word. Because before I wasn't keeping your word. But now I do. So the very next verse says, thou art good and doest good. See? Affliction drove him to the word that I might behold the beauty of God's goodness. God's goodness is beautiful because it, it, it enraptures his glory. That's why when Moses said, Lord, I want to see your glory, and God said, I can't let you see my glory, Exodus chapter 33, we'll, we'll talk to, about this on Sunday, that, but I will let all my goodness pass before you. His glory is his beauty. But his beauty is seen in his goodness, his graciousness, his kindness. And God wants you to see that. He wants you to be able to behold the beauty of the Lord. And so, the psalmist says, before I was afflicted, I did whatever I wanted to do. But God had to get my attention. I wasn't listening. So that affliction drove me to the word of God. And when I was driven to the truth of God's word, guess what? I realized that God is good. You know what? He does good. What was good? The affliction. The affliction was good. Because without the goodness of his affliction, he would not see the good God. How great is that? 
See, we missed the whole point. And this is Elihu trying to get Job to see that God is speaking to you through the discipline, through the, through the chastisement, through the pain that you're experiencing. And he's drawing you closer to himself that you might be intimate with him and come to know him as he's meant to be known. I have no idea the pain that you are experiencing this very moment. I have no idea. I have no, no, no idea the magnitude of your loneliness, the magnitude of your, of your pain, the mag- magnitude of, of all the turmoil that's in your heart and the anxiety you feel every single day you get out of bed and have to face another day with a family that's unsaved or a husband or a wife that totally rebels against the Lord or the affliction you might be facing because when you get up, you're in pain all day. I have no idea. But God does. And God, in his own way, has designed that affliction. In faithfulness, the psalmist said, you have afflicted me. God doesn't afflict you outside of his faithfulness. He afflicts you because he is faithful. And because he is faithful, he's going to use that affliction to drive you to him. Instead of looking at affliction as a negative thing, always look at affliction as a very positive thing. Don't look at suffering as negative. Look at it as positive. That somehow God is opening your ears, opening your eyes to be able to see what God has for you on this day and for every day beyond this point. That God wants to draw you closer to him so you will see the beauty of his character and worship him for who he really is. That's why the psalmist said, one thing I desire, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Why? That I might behold, what? The beauty of the Lord. The beauty of the Lord. You see, that's what affliction does. It drives me back to where I need to be. God has been driving Job to a certain place. And Job was a righteous man, a holy man, an upright man. A man who turned away from evil. We saw last time. He made a covenant with his eyes not to look lustfully upon a woman. We, he talked about his integrity. And yet in spite of all that, the intimacy that Job needed to experience with his God was not where it needed to be just yet. For when God finally reveals himself to him in all of his beauty, in all of his splendor, right? Job's only response is what? I repent. In dust and ashes. I've been wrong about you all along. Because I've heard of you. But for the first time, my eyes have truly seen the beauty of the living God. That's Elihu's point. Elihu is driving Job back. So he appropriates the truth of God. He enunciates the graciousness of God. And now he's going to open Job's mind to the majesty, the mystery, the ministry of God in all his justice. Because God doesn't do anything wrong. Everything he does is absolutely spot on, right and holy. And that's why Elihu is not condemned at the end. This is why God does not rebuke Elihu. Because Elihu is spot on. 
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for tonight, a chance to spend some time in your word and to be refreshed, to realize, Lord, that whatever is happening in our lives, even as we speak right now, you're at work. Nothing happens by accident, everything by divine appointment. Why? Because you are a sovereign God who controls everything. The day of adversity, the day of prosperity. You've made them both. And you want to make sure that we are in the process of trusting only you amidst them. May that be the case for all of us tonight, Lord, that we might live for the glory of your name until you come again, as you most surely will. In Jesus' name, amen.